0: All right, everyone. Welcome. Uh, We got a really special podcast today. This is our one of three with Gray Cook. So uh, in this one, we kind of dove deep into the history of FMS and where it all began, when Gray really started to think about it, and and the whole purpose behind a movement screen. So uh, Brett, what what were your takeaways from it?
1: I think no one in the world is making people look globally away from the sight of symptoms and complaint as much as Gray Cook has. So obviously Dr. Carol Levitt and his, you know, in his original textbooks, he was the first one to really start talking about this. And then obviously the contemporary Pavel Collage and DNS. But I think, you know, presently, Gray's probably the one who is doing the best job, I think, of making sure you're not missing something that is, you know, outside of where where their complaint is.
0: And Brett and I have talked about too, I think like, for a young clinician or a young doc that maybe you haven't earned the right to start taking shortcuts and missing things of, uh, of starting to look globally, then adding an SFMA top tier and through the breakouts, is an, it's a great way to start thinking globally and to start assessing globally to, to make sure you're not missing things or to help you bring to conclusions of how you know distal issues can cause proximal problems. So
1: No, I agree, and I think within the podcast, Gray kind of debunks some of the things, like when people have thrown stones at him over the years, he's probably, uh, you know, unfortunately taken some bullets that he didn't need to take, and, uh, so he basically clears those points up, and I think, uh, he does that really well, actually, in kind of defending, you know, what he was trying to do. He's not actually saying it's the end-all, be-all. He's just saying this is basically, you know, as far as the FMS goes, this is the blood pressure cuff of movement, Mm -hmm. you know, which, uh which I think is a really good point. We don't have to like, you know, make it be something that it's not. It's just for what it is. It does a it does a really nice job. Absolutely. So,
0: and then he also one of my favorite parts of this first episode of him talking about mobility and stability. And so, how a mobility problem can reflect as a stability problem or you may have a mobility uh, fix for a stability problem, and so I think that was really cool for him to clear that up and and, and get down to it. So uh, one thing that we're trying to implement this in, in our office every single day. I mean, we we have these conference uh, you know conversations all the time, and I think uh, the FMS adding into our school physicals was a is a really good uh, thing. We've started to kind of pour over the data, and and I think that's like an, a really simple way if you're doing school physicals to really capture a broader picture of what's going on with that athlete. So. With that being said, uh, enjoy this conversation with Greg Cook, and uh, stay tuned for the next ones. All right, everyone. Welcome uh, to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. So uh, Brett and I are in... uh... Where are we? Yeah, where are we? Where the
2: hell are we? Smith Mountain Lake, Virginia. Virginia. So...
0: Uh, we're sitting down with the one, the only, the guy that needs no introduction, Greg Cook. So uh, we've uh, been lucky enough to get a tour of your clinic, the headquarters FMS, and now we're, we're at the lake. And so we're going to have a little, uh, uh, how'd you yeah, say, no, untaxed uh, alcohol in a, in a jar?
2: Untaxed alcohol in a jar. <laughs> Look at this stuff. call no, it moonshine right? if you want. Mm-hmm.
0: Some wild blackberries in it. Uh, we've been sipping on it all weekend. It's uh, as good as it gets. So, What do you think of that? It's <sighs> so smooth. So good. Yep.
1: So, um, I mean, we're, we've got a ton of topics that we want to cover. Uh- the problem is, all the content we've done in the last twenty four hours didn't get uh, recorded or taped, which yeah. is good. That's going to lead into what we're about to do.
0: Exactly. So we spent all day yesterday with Gray, and uh, I mean we had we had some really good conversations. I was uh, I'm very thankful for you allowing us to come out to your your home and uh, you know ask you some questions and get to know you a little bit more. And uh, well, we're we're forever thankful. So Gray, let's uh, let's start off this whole journey with FMS. I mean, how did it start? I mean, where Tell us the history, will you?
2: Right. Well, well, last night we 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 sort of picked at the the beginnings of the functional movement screen, but the, but the whole concept of looking at whole movement before we go into our reductionistic OCD yeah. breakouts, is just appreciating appreciating movement, and I think it's a it's a lost mm-hmm. art, just like the lost art of diagnosis. A physician used to call a fracture and then get the X ray to confirm, and now mm-hmm. we have people that can't talk to you unless they're holding your lab work in front of them because they don't know what they think until the machine told them what to think. And so the lost art of diagnosis is not just taking a deep dive on a body part. It's also appreciating the whole of movement. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be as tactically dissecting as we could be, but that's a local investigation. And if you don't have global framework, then what are you shooting for mm. in restoration? Aristotle said the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and therefore we gotta measure both. Right. Otherwise you can't prove it. So there's a whole and there's a sum of its parts, and we've gotta vet the parts, but we've got so much information vetting the parts that we never go back and appreciate whole movement. So that actually occurred early in my career. And I had a guy who was a exercise physiologist, master's degree, and we really matched wits on functional exercise. This was before the movement screen, before anything. I had a manual therapy background. I had an exercise background and I had a young female athlete that had six more visits of therapy. And I pretty much Closed the book on most of her post-surgical rehab. I mobed her patella, I got the quad back, and I basically called Keith Fields over. He was one of my original guys in FMS. And I said, Listen, uh, she's all exercised from here on out. We got six visits. You can play it twice a week for three or three times a week for two, however you want to do it. But at the end of this, I need her lunging equally on each side. I can't I don't want to be able to tell which is the bad side, and obviously it can't be painful. He goes, Great, what do you want me to do? I said, I just told you. I want her to be able to lunge and I don't want to be able to tell which was the bad side anymore. It's like, yeah, what do you, what, what? I'm like, well, what would 99.9% of the industry do right now? We just practice lunges for two to three weeks and then. Call today. But I'm like, but what if we didn't do that? What if we didn't practice the lunge? What would you do to authentically restore the fact that she trusted either leg out front? That's what I'm really going for. And we started thinking and I'm like, so we could practice the test. That's easy. But I'm like, Let's do a half kneeling chop. He's like, why are we going to do that? I'm like, well, everybody looks good in the starting position of a lunge, which is standing. Mm -hmm. Most people look really bad getting into the other position. So if you think about every movement pattern is positioned between two postures. And so a lunge has two postures in one pattern. It's got a standing and almost something looks like half kneeling and everything in between we call the pattern. So I said, the hardest part of a lunge is the lowest part of a lunge. That's a chop and lift. So let's give her some static confidence, one knee down, one knee up, and look at that static position both ways. I would imagine when she's so strong and half kneeling, if she can sling a medicine ball either way off either knee, her lunge is going to look pretty good too because she's not scared of that position anymore. Mm -hmm. That's where we really started the journey of saying, this looks a lot like we're going back in development. We're not practicing the exercise because the exercise is the test. We're actually going back in development and removing the reason you lunged bad. We're not trying to train you into our textbook definition of a lunge. A lunge is a spontaneous, naturally occurring movement that looks like direction change and deceleration. Babies do it all the time. So remove the reason they're lunging bad. We're not going for an Olympic gold medal in lunging. And, and that's really what the concept of FMS is. If, if you look at every position and every movement we picked in FMS, at no time do we go outside of normal goniometric ranges. We simply expect triple flexion out of your leg, not flat ankle flexion in isolation. Mm-hmm. And we know that if, if you can't cover these moves, then even if you can perform at an athletic level, you're either not gonna adapt as well because you're having to work around a problem or you could be putting yourself at risk for either proprioception, being deprived or early fatigue because of poor efficiency. So our whole point is we're not trying to say the better your screen is, the better an athlete you are. We're simply saying there's no competitive advantage for moving that shitty ever. Right. no matter what you're doing. So if in any, any way possible, what we realized is if we didn't have this functional baseline, we can discharge anybody from physical therapy or chiropractic care anytime we want and claim they're functional because there's no baseline. Mm-hmm. There's,
1: right? Perfect segue into the next question. So what are some of the misconceptions of FMS?
2: When I originally... um sort of published the the movement screen it was first published in a in a book called high performance sports conditioning bill ferran was a strength coach in the miami heat at the time and he gave me chapter 2 and said I, I like what you're saying i don't completely know what you're talking about but let's let's throw it out there and i was honored to have that opportunity but i i do know a lot of early clinicians that were were looking for functional applications some guidance yeah Yeah, they were using the screen as an assessment tool, Mm -hmm. and that's like using an eye chart for an eye exam. An eye chart is part of an eye exam, and it's one of the most basic fundamental parts where we establish whether you have competency or not with vision, and that's really all the movement screen was. So really, the movement screen was invented for me. To see clearly on discharge what I had not fixed and what I had fixed. Number one, if the movement screen provokes pain, I'm still on the job here. And so whether whether I want to admit it or not, I'm not finished. I, I shouldn't release you yet. It's not done. If any of these movements are below the cut, I should probably consider that a risk factor for a future problem because we know the number one prediction of a future injury is a past injury, right. right? Does that mean that people are permanently altered with every injury they have? Or in most cases, rehabilitation is somewhat incomplete, or people assume that when the symptoms are gone, all function is restored. And so our patients can help us understand when their symptoms are gone, but they can't tell us when they're functionally restored. The person who has 2080 vision doesn't know it, Right? right? If their vision erodes slowly, yeah, they subtle. just get a blurry world and they think everybody else sees that way too. And all of a sudden they're in a car accident and nobody knows why that happened. Right. So that slow erosion of movement is something that, that happens all around us. Um, you, you look at somebody after a total knee, they get a smaller life, sure. they, they, they just do less. It's reality. Yeah, my knee doesn't hurt as much but it's not because I got titanium where bone used to be. It's because I've got a much smaller life. I don't do steps anymore. You shut your I...
1: lifestyle down. Yeah, man.
2: yeah. I get a minivan, not a sedan anymore because I can step up, not down into my vehicle. <laughs> so you look at all of the accommodations people make so we don't have to adapt. And yet the one thing all of us want to do is age gracefully. Well, don't lose your adaptive capacity. And when you, when you have less functional positions you can get in, your adaptive capacity goes down.
1: So great. It's been 20 years since this all this party got started. So in hindsight, if we just talked about FMS right now, are you happy with the seven tests? Do you think that they should be tweaked? I mean, 20 years from now, is it still going to be the same seven tests or uh, I think what, what everyone loves about it is there's something beautiful about simplicity, you know, so it would be really easy to kind of muddy the waters and make it difficult. So yeah, what are your thoughts on on that? Are these the are these going to be the seven tests moving forward? Are you going to add tests? Would you add components to these tests, or just? I like I like keeping a screen as a as a
2: unified tool, just like a, an eye chart, uh, and I use that analogy all the time. A lot of people try to screen you in one move, like an overhead deep squat, mm-hmm. and uh, that is almost like having an eye chart with one line. If you can't read the line, you fail. And if you can read the line, you pass, but that doesn't give me a unique way to see where your break point is. Right. Right. So by having multiple movement patterns, you gotta realize we go through the same ankle, hip and knee range of motion on one side of your lunge or on both sides with your squat. Mm-hmm. Why can somebody lunge effectively on right and left but still can't squat? That's weird. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? Right? And and so we start looking at these movement things and when we see consistency throughout the movement screen. I mean, when your squat, hurdle step, and lunge all seem broken, how is that not an ankle mobility problem? Right. And when one looks perfect and the other's impossible, how's that not a motor control problem? You covered all the range of motion in that pattern, and yet when I asked for the range of motion to be expressed the exact same way, but bilaterally in a squat, you can't do it. And, and so there are these things that happen in movement that are unpredictable. We can clear the knee on the table, and damn, they still can't do eccentrics. Right. What's that all about? Right. And so, if we look at whole movement patterns as behaviors, we can actually manage these these things so much better because not every posterior horn meniscus is going to act the same. Sure. Everybody's bringing different shit to Variables, this party. So, right. so defining somebody by their medical diagnosis tells you what their contraindications are, but not what their indications are. Not 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 once in ACL rehab with a pro athlete has the doctor ever said, hey, since they're gonna be non-weight bearing for the first three weeks, why don't you make sure their ankles are mobile and work the shit out of their core? Anybody can mobilize a patella and range a knee. All right? And I can have one of my assistants do that. You can't weight bear right now, I'm gonna shred your core, I'm gonna get your ankles mobile and I'm gonna I'm gonna work on rib cage mobility and shoulders. Right? T spine rotation. I'm going to. Nobody told me to do it. Right. But I'm going to wish these things weren't in the way when your feet hit the ground. So let's let's go ahead and and do it. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm charging either way. So why not be proactive? And so what I wanted to do in my examination is not just chase your pain. I also wanted to look at all of the dysfunctions that will complicate rehabilitation. So when I have a total knee with a locked up ankle. There's only so much I can do with that knee today. But that ankle doesn't have to be locked up when we start walking. And and I don't think a lot of people want to make that argument with an insurance company or patient. Why are you not working on the part that hurts? Why are you working somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. You never ask your dentist that, right? Because <laughs> there's a fucking rotten tooth back here, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I owe that to you. I'll work on that, too. So I think we... we are almost apologetic, like we're trying to create more problems than we're seeing. There's a good chance you're not going to be the previous version of yourself if I
1: don't do this. Mm-hmm. So. so, Gray, um, I always pay you a compliment, and I say no one has made students of chiropractic and physical therapy look globally like Gray Cook has because of FMS and SFA. With that thought, what was your original frustration, maybe with your patients or the way you were originally trained? that like making you start looking outside of the site of complaint and to start looking at the whole kinematic system to, to find the true problem. Oh, um, Cause what, here's what we've learned is like, that's the cool thing to say. People give that lip service, but then when the, you know, when the rubber hits the road, people aren't always so good at actually doing that. I so know.
2: I know and, and believe me, I think, I think we <laughs> became popular in the beginning because of things I was saying on stage many other people were feeling the same way, right. okay? I think many people thought that we had gotten a little too myopic, right? Oh, uh, I'm a PT, but I only do knees. Are you kidding me, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so a lot of people love the convenience of specialization. Mm-hmm. And when you specialize, you are not really in an appropriate place to look at all the side effects that you cause. While you're trying to make a pristine ankle up under an arthritic knee and an unstable hip. Sure. You know, so, so the first thing that I tried to do was realize that my patients weren't always an accurate cr- critic of my work, meaning some people would bake me a pie and hug me and, and say, you changed my life. And nothing objectively in their case had changed. I think they just needed a friend and somebody to tell their problems to. And then somebody else will come in and say, I don't know what you did Friday, but I had the worst weekend of my life, and and I think I'm way worse. And so I said, unless I have a level of objectivity, of, of movement signs, not just symptoms, then both of these people are wrong. This person likes me, and I'm not doing them any objective service whatsoever. This person's bitching me out. Mm -hmm. And actually I changed this guy's balance by 30% and his toe touch is restored. He just had a bad weekend, but it ain't because of me Mm -hmm. because uh, you know, I, I, that weighs on me. So if, if, you know, you can't, you can't rely on their subjective appraisal because many of our patients in pain are sleep deprived, somewhat dehydrated, and probably not well oxygenated, and right?
1: they're lying to you is yeah. the other thing. They never tell the truth. No. So I mean, you have to have no, another. You got to have some objective right. criteria to right. see if they're actually better. Yeah.
2: The, the the kindergarten teacher never believes the student. You can't. They, right. they they're it's not in their best interest. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've got to lie. So you've got to figure out a way to both understand their pain, but also lay down this functional baseline that um, isn't just the range of motion, the freedom, or the strength test, the control. It's what are you doing when you put that together?
1: Gray, how do you uh, convey this message to the patient? If you're working far distant off the side of their complaint or where their surgery was... As far as the education to the patient, what do you think are some of the key things you'd have to convey to the patient to keep them on board for you know working more globally versus more locally?
2: Uh, I'll take a simple example. When I'm going through the top tier of the SFMA, I don't tell patients how they're moving. I let them tell me. So when they're doing a standing rotation test, I said, make note of what you're seeing behind you. Do it to the other side. Are you getting the same picture? Do you feel the same way? And then when they keep telling me, They point at their serratus and say, it's right here. I'm getting a cramp right here every time I rotate left. I realize they're not weight shifting. So I'll go and do something on their foot or their ankle or something like that. I've got a single leg stance test in the bag already that says they have poor left single leg stance. So when we revisit single leg stance, they realize what I did with my hand changed their balance and they didn't practice balance. So they realize, oh, there's, they don't call it a reset, but they realize I've been adjusted. Somebody altered me. And so, number one, they have an appreciation balance is better. Then I'll say, now go back to the left rotation move. They had an appropriate weight shift left. They see way more and they don't get the cramp. So I had two tests laid down. One they were poor at but was not painful provoking. And so I changed their function, but I didn't tell them I changed their function. I just said, I'm going to work on your ankle. Check your balance now. And they say, well, that's way better. You know, and then I'm like, all right, now that your balance is better, let's rotate. So the entire time they wanted a T-spine the nip because they couldn't rotate to the left. And I'm like, your T-spine's rotating to the left fine. You're running out of room because you're on your, on, only on one foot. So it's, I, I will usually create two breadcrumbs, one of a pain provocation and one of a dysfunction. I will try to alter both with a single move. And usually nobody ever questions that. They understand that I'm unbelievably transparent. Had I done this to your ankle and your balance isn't better, you have a perfect opportunity to tell me it's not better, mm-hmm. right? Better, worse, or the same. I, I, I don't care which one you say, but I can pivot based on that. So I will try to lay a, a functional test down that they can easily appreciate without me measuring something. It's mm-hmm. not the goniometer. And then I'll have a provocation test. And so if if I reduce dysfunction, but I can't modulate pain, then I've got to explain that. We talk about inflammation and some of the other things went on. If I change the pain, but don't change the function, then I got to admit that too. But I let them know I'm watching two gauges here mm-hmm. and I always will, not just
1: one. So Gray, being around you the last 24 hours, I can see you're a very linear, cl- clean thinker, very systematic um outside the world world of physical therapy what influenced you as far as systems theory like what are some of the things that you maybe studied or looked at when you started to think of how do i put a system to something that has so much chaos
2: i i go back and and look at these pivotal moments in history. Uh, in, I think in the 30s or 40s, the aviation profession mm. was a very dangerous place to work. <laughs> a lot of people died. A lot right? of blunders. Yep, a lot of blunders. And and in one year, the statistics on death, fatality, loss of life and equipment changed completely. And it wasn't through education and nobody upgraded the equipment. Standard operating procedure in the cockpit.
1: System of checks and balances.
2: System of checks and balances.
1: And, and it sounds monotonous, but it, it's mind-numbing, right?
2: But and I'm still glad the guy in the cockpit does it. I'm still glad that you know, you know, the, the OR uh, in the <laughs> OR, we have a system of checks and balances. And when you think about something like sniper school, okay, does it ever occur to anybody that everybody already knows how to shoot when they go there? They already know how to pull <laughs> a pull trigger. trigger, right? So is sniper school about shooting more bullets or shooting less bullets? Well, <laughs> right. Yeah. So so. I find that, that so many clinicians graduate from osteopathic, chiropractic, physical therapy school, allopathic medical school, they assume they are great diagnosticians, but they have no problem admitting, I'd like a bigger treatment bag of tricks. So mm-hmm. they immediately start you know, taking continuing ed on treatment, but it never occurred to anybody that the most accomplished shooters in the world shoot less bullets, not more. Mm-hmm. They're snipers. Be a sniper. Be a sniper. So, and that doesn't mean be a specialist. Mm -hmm. It means have a process of elimination to quickly find out, is this my patient or not? Mm -hmm. And the SFMA has saved my butt four times in my career when what I was seeing was not a movement modulated pain. And in three of those situations, we were dealing with cancer and one was a tumor. And I chose not to treat them. I chose not to ultrasound these people, not to just make them comfortable. I'm like something, something here is not all movement related. And I was able to have really cool conversations with the physician because I could have easily wasted two months of this person's life instead of letting them get on with something way more important than a little bit of low back. pain. Well, we talk a lot
1: about that. I mean, that's about pattern recognition, right? Like clinical yeah. intuitions right. basically recognition. You've seen it this way a hundred times when it's not fitting that mold, then you automatically your antenna gets it goes up and you start thinking about, you know, some of these other more yeah. sinister so, things, maybe. So the first order of business is do no harm. And I take that very seriously.
2: And wasting your time or working on something that's not your weakest link is a waste of your time. Or
1: saving your life, maybe. You know, Yeah, I mean, exactly,
2: yeah. exactly. So I, I do take that responsibility and that need for differential diagnosis right up front. Mm-hmm. I, I, in, in physical therapy terms, I'm board certified and specialized in orthopedics, but I've never considered myself a sports therapist. I'm just a good orthopedic therapist, and sports is where we see a lot of injury and accident. And so it's just a compressed injury model. The, the, the sport, I'm I'm not trying to be a sports fan and stand next to that. I'm, it's not about that at all. I just love um, situations where where we can see rehabilitation run very, very fast. Mm-hmm. So we can see a guy get his knee scoped. He's back on the field in three weeks doing what he's supposed to do. But that's two-a-day therapy. That's monitoring lifestyle. That's coaching the crap out of him. But, but I... I like still being a general physical therapist and being a resource in the community for injured kids and older people who want their independence. We back.
1: felt that at your office yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, way do we put the footage out? He is Gray is just in a small town, like, and I just think it is so awesome. And uh, your your patients have to appreciate that, although you're at a certain level, that you're still reaching out to the masses. And I think that's I, I that's felt- a great thing. If it, where you've gotten. You know, it's a huge attribute as a human being, I think.
2: felt like a hypocrite riding around the world telling people how to do physical therapy and, and not making sure it was being done right in my own community. And, and I had to, I, I can't be there for everybody, but I can stand behind a clinic and make sure the right therapists are,
1: are available.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I did not want to feel like a hypocrite. And about a year after we opened the the physical therapy clinic we got on the FMS campus, um, my parents were in an auto accident. And that clinic was there for you know, mm. them. It was three months before we could get them home. My dad had a grade three pelvic fracture and separation, and my mom nearly died. Um, helicopter out. They were hit by a drunk driver on their 50th wedding anniversary.
1: Sure. Oh, my God. Wow. But, you know, I'm the glad world I, comes I, full circle. I'm, I'm
2: glad we had that clinic there because they both learned to walk.
1: Hmm. Um, Onto that little that's amazing so, yeah. so gray is is all of us move along in our life we sometimes get painted into some corners we don't want to be uh, painted into you got painted into a corner of that you people were thinking you were saying that i only go after movement before stabilization and we kind of cleared this all up last night but i would like to kind of clear the air because that's definitely a stigma that you've kind of carried around which undeservingly so mm-hmm. but uh Talk about why, why people have misconstrued that and and what you meant by that and what.
2: Well, you know, the mobility is
1: a demonstration
2: of freedom and stability is a demonstration of control. I knew exactly what Stu McGill was talking about when he was talking about super stiffness, but I would not have chosen that word because Mm. stiffness. Rigid. And rigidity are not under conscious control, but stability is. Stability actually operates best under subconscious control, but I can choose to be stable or I can choose to be free. That is that is stability, that is motor control. So I would never refer to stability and stiffness the same way. Um, but having said that, your mobility or your flexibility is your freedom and your stability is your motor control. Freedom and control equal movement, but talking about control when there's not enough freedom misses the point. So I've, I've always said mobility first, but let me tell you how I think a lot of people misconstrued that. They immediately go into treatment mode and say, but I think the reason they don't have good mobility could be because of a lack of stability. I'm like, I'm not debating that. But if you were to do that technique that would invoke better motor control, would it express itself on a stability test or a mobility test? Meaning, if I do a stabilization move with you, if I restabilize your scap and we pick up forward flexion, you improved your mobility. And that's all I said. If you've got a mobility this restriction. This is really
1: good right now. Yeah, well, yeah, if you've got me.
2: a mobility restriction, yep. show me that if mobility is the bottleneck, a lack of freedom is what we're measuring as your biggest problem, then I didn't tell you to stretch them, manipulate them or adjust them. I said, let let them express more freedom actively, and I will endorse the technique you did. I don't need to know what you did. You could have taped their scapula, or you could have done scapular PNF. I don't care, but mobility first. So so a lot of people try to say, well, I think the reason they're stiff is a lack of stability, and this is their you know, park and break, and whatever. Fine. Then do your thing, but we will not measure them better in a stability test because we can't vet a stability test in the presence of limited mobility because How do you know that the lack of proprioception isn't causing a poor motor program? So when I see somebody with a restricted ankle, I'm not thinking like Gray Cook biomechanist. I know what a restricted ankle does to your body. I'm thinking about Gray Cook as a behaviorist. You're working with 30% less information coming through that garden hose because ankle mobility is like somebody standing on that garden hose. So, So you're sensory deprived on that side. And, and and talking glute activation when you got an ankle dorsiflexion flexion restriction is stupid. You you don't consciously activate your glutes anywhere. It's a subconscious trigger by your posterior chain and your calf and your ankle. So when I see a mobility problem, you're working with a proprioceptive, sensory mm-hmm. motor deficit. And so I don't care what te- technique you do. You can do stability or mobility. But I will know you did the right thing because freedom will come back. Because mm-hmm. that which that's, that's where we that's measure our Yeah, on. I yeah. love that. Test, treat, retest. Exactly. I mean, and, and, and you're doing it for yourself and you're doing it for them. I want the feedback loop. The cool thing about a lot of the functional tests we do, I don't have to explain them to patients. I have to explain them to interns. I got to explain <laughs> them to physicians. I got to explain them to a lot of colleagues. I never have to explain to a patient why having better single leg stance is going to transition them into more safe gait. I never have to explain that. I don't ever have to argue with anybody that a toe touch should be normal throughout most of your lifespan. And, and when we restore somebody's toe touch, they, they feel more normal. They, 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 they quit making excuses for, for movement when you give it back to them. Where are we
1: at with the composite score on the FMS? What do you, how important is that? What do you use with it? I know people have kind of thrown stones at it over the years, but, um, If we're not holding under scrutiny of research right now, just for a second, what do you take from a composite score on somebody for an FMS? My first
2: scan is, are there any zeros? Did any of these movements provoke pain regardless of what they scored? So if I got a pain provocation somewhere in there, it doesn't mean I go immediately into care. A lot of times, um, if I have also some dysfunction, we'll simply work on the dysfunction at a more of a fitness or functional level without ever going full on clinical. But if we can't mitigate that pretty quick, we're, we're going for SFMA. Um, but my whole thing is, I just want to see where your ones are. I'm not really going to be a suit Nazi if you've got average or above average movement. I'm looking for pain provocation and you can't cover range of motion in one of these fundamental or functional patterns. So the, the total score or the scoring system has never really been the problem. As soon as I find what line on the eye chart you flung, that's, that's exactly where my test retest mm-hmm. is going to be. So I'm not really trying to predict your future success with a movement screen and i think a lot of people you know between some of the stuff that greg rose has done at tpi where a lot of what we're doing in in golf screening is trying to predict your swing fault and your level of success fms i'm trying to predict failure okay it doesn't matter how good your fms is it matters how bad it is right there's a lot of the vision tests we do in baseball are better than 2020 but you can play baseball with 2020. So, so a lot of people look at the whole screen. I do the entire screen so I can find the one problem and go down that that rabbit hole, knowing that I can always come back out and do that do that full test. Um, athletic populations don't seem to have higher composite screens than normal people because the athletes are usually. A habituated movement pattern. They they have uh, injury history a little bit bigger than the general public. So nobody's screening clean. Mm-hmm. The the last time you'll see clean, authentic movement screens is about seventh grade, <laughs> if they're active kids, and then we start getting banged around on the world. So
1: that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so in saying that, how is FMS SFMA perfectly utilized in and you're a physical therapist? Are our crowd is physical therapists and chiropractors, but how do you like to see it perfectly implemented in the clinical setting? What, what is, what would that look like? What would make you proud to, you walk into a random
0: clinic?
2: Uh, standard operating procedure, um, on discharge, um, when, when people are helping out pre-participation physicals with sports, I know a lot of physical therapists and chiropractors are there on the day we're mm. doing sports physicals. Don't stand there and weigh people and measure their height. Let damn gym teacher do that. Get over there and screen them. Uh, have, have, you know, any kid that's had a previous lower quarter injury, do a, do a movement screen and a YBT on kids with a past injury history, like an ankle or knee, most prevalent injury in high school athletics is going to be ankle. The ACL is going to be the first surgery they get. So any kid with a past medical history, lower quarter, do Y balance test. It's just a well invested ten minutes, and if that kid uh, is doing fine, um, you know the YBT will say it. And and I love complementing the movement screen with a Y balance test because the Y balance test is like your thermometer, right? I can tell a kid's got a fever from across the room, but I can't tell you if it's one hundred one or one hundred four. Hmm. The YBT on a person who's had a previous injury will tell you if that injury is still present on the dashboard or it's in their past. And that's why that that previous injury, I think, is often recognized as a risk factor, not because people cannot be fully restored or rehabilitated.
1: They often aren't. As soon as they're pain free, they discharge themselves. What are the people missing who are not using the Y balance test for the upper extremity? I think everyone's kind of used to doing it for the lower. but. Uh, For some reason, the upper gets neglected. And and believe it or not,
2: just to make it that much easier for people, I'm the biggest one to maybe not do a YBT as often as possible. We abbreviated the two squeeze patterns of the YBT, the forward reach with your foot and the superior um, medial reach where you reach across your body. Mm. And so we took the two squeeze points of the balance test, which is our gold standard. It's the MRI. And we can take a quick x-ray. So if I've got an overhead athlete, tennis, golf, uh, pitcher, whatever, I'd like to take that snapshot. Because if you think about this, if I've got a movement screen and I've got a snapshot of your plank and pistol, I've got a pretty good baseline that I can revisit. Um, I like upper and lower quarter balance testing because I don't care whether we get a concussion or what? It's a great snapshot for motor control because just because you flunk a balance test doesn't mean you get balance exercise. You'll flunk it because of mobility and stability purposes. The FMS will tell me where your movement pattern deficiency is. The YBT will tell me how bad your fever is.
1: And I'm always amazed. I mean, there was two papers that showed, one with a star excursion test, the other was a Y balance test, that four centimeters was basically the key differentiator asymmetrically in the lower extremity. Uh, What I'm curious on, is there any normative data on the upper extremity on a Y balance test? Or do you have any?
2: Not as much, but yeah, we, we, we do have some. And believe it or not, it's almost the same criteria. When we do a motor control screen, it's really pretty simple. You need to reach two foot lengths. Keep it simple. Yeah, and so whether it's upper or lower, the way we measure it is I've got a body relative measure Of your foot lengths is what your superior medial reach is supposed to be, or your partial pistol is supposed to be, and so it keeps it clean. So, in clinic, I'll do these little motor control screens before and after I manipulate somebody's neck or dry needle their paraspinals. And when they see a spontaneous restoration of symmetry or their weak side come up, they're blown away because. A movement just got better that they didn't practice and I think that's a powerful thing that we need to use in the clinic more so if you're listening to this and you're doing SFMA stuff and you like it long before you're doing a full movement screen or have time to do a YVT do the little upper and lower body motor control screens because how many of us have seen grip strength change after a good neck treatment Mm -hmm. right yeah you see that. that that grip strength comes back around you didn't add strength, you removed inhibition. Mm-hmm. And that exact same thing happens, and so if you don't practice balance, and somewhere in your manual therapy and, and movement restoration, you can spontaneously make somebody balance better, how is that not the central nervous system saying this was a good treatment? This is a good thing, so this
1: was funny. Uh, Gray and I were, we were talking this past week, kind of getting ready for uh, our meeting here, and he put me a half an hour behind with my patients because we kind of got talking about this. So how do you sort through the fact that we could have a person do 10 jumping jacks and immediately improve their range of motion? So when we're looking at an audit that we're coming back to, how do we know, and I have an opinion, but I'm curious to hear yours, how do we know that that is actually the intervention that we need to be doing versus just some neurologic noise that you did something and improved range of motion? Mm-hmm. How do you know the intervention is actually the right one? I'm glad you brought that up
2: because you're absolutely right. We can do a we do parlor tricks all the time. It's co- old seminar tricks, body. you know. Yeah, like yeah, there, yeah, yeah, seminar tricks, and 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 so. Uh, A few years ago, I really wanted to go back and attack our own exercise model because too many people were looking at corrective exercise as a one-off exercise I pull out of this mysterious Grey Cook functional exercise deck. (laughs) And they were treating a single exercise almost like a manipulation or adjustment, thinking that is a corrective maneuver. What I realize is the closer we can get you to something that looks like a sun salutation or a Turkish get-up or standing up from the ground, I literally need to see two or three different postures and patterns woven together, and I'll know that I have truly hit save on the document. So we basically have three stations of exercise woven together. The first station, um, let's 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 take your leg raise. Let's say you're a guy who's got a really, really stiff leg raise on one side. I don't care if it's neural tension, sciatica, hip flexor, quad, it doesn't matter what it is. You got a restricted leg raise. It's not driven by pain. It just one leg just won't get past about 45 degrees. The other one, say, is seventy. I can easily put you in a happy baby position, right? Just bend your knees. Mm -hmm. And from a happy baby, I can just say attempt rolling right and left. On your stiff side, you're not going to be able to roll as much. But I can just play on your back. And I don't try to do anything but get in happy baby and try to roll left and right. And usually you will come out of that saying, on my stiff side, I can't roll. Done. That's your awareness drill. That's Mm -hmm. your movement screen, right? Because if you ever come back to happy baby and something's changed, you'll be the first to know, won't you? We then transition over and we just let you get into sideline and do something like a bretzel or a whole body stretch. But I pump your breathing, not quite, Wham Hof, but I'm actually saying don't go into tension. Before you get tension, if you get halfway into a bretzel and cannot cycle a full breath, come back out to your can, and only bite off as much T-spine rotation as you can cycle a full breath. And what you will see is what you thought was your barrier will melt. Just with the, with the breathing. Mm. The very last thing we're going to finish up with is a toe touch progression, right? The, the, the tried and true FMS stage trick, toes up, toes down. Mm. So I've got an awareness drill. I've got a breathing drill, and I've got a control drill. And those are the new ABCs of exercise because if, if they don't know why they're doing it, if you don't have some awareness preloading that, the score of the movement screen or the dissertation you got off the SFMA means nothing to them. You did that entire thing so you would know that happy baby is the position to put them in.
1: Or for our listeners out there, I think too, the next time you see them, like that might be the better. That's a true test, right? I mean, because it, 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 it is. You can change anything in a second. So so to give your, it three hours to
2: your question, we had a real life demonstration. And I do this all the time. Right after the happy baby, most people have already improved their leg raise a little bit. And so we had an athlete that almost normalized his leg raise just by playing with happy baby. And everybody says, why do I even need to do the, uh, the breathing and control drill? I mean, aha, his central nervous system hasn't accepted this. You've created freedom, but he has no idea what to control. So he will default back to that pre-exercise tone intention. They're you know, like, you made to improve it? And there was a 30-inch box over there. I'm like, go jump on that box three times. One, two, three, lay down on the ground. Leg raise was right back where it started. I said, now, follow the rules. Do the happy baby again. Do the little breathing pretzel again. Do the toe touch progression. Jump on that box 30 times. Leg raise, hell. So that's my point. We can bang on him enough and lose that again. But if I can correct you for your half-hour workout, or your half hour practice, or your half hour tennis match, you will then use a higher degree of that movement pattern for the next half hour, and believe it or not, that was my um, master's thesis at University of Miami. We did a, a PNF pattern, jumping pattern, against control and against lower body plyometrics, and after 30 minutes of rest, we had an improved vertical leap, and the other two warm ups faded back down to normalcy. So we were able to hack in to the the movement system and install a cleaner jumping pattern. And the way we did it was two small pieces of TheraBand held in your hand, tied to the ground. And we didn't tell you how to jump, but we told you to jump as high and as fast as you could. So those people that didn't get full in extension, they, they left their hands in front a little bit. What did the bands do? It pulled them into flexion right? So they overcompensated with more extension. How about the people that hyperextended? It pulled them backward. They planked up a little bit. How about the people jumping left or right? So all it was was a self-limiting PNF without hands on them, right? right? Because I was feeding whatever mistake they were making. That later became one of the first things we were teaching called RNT, reactive neuromuscular training. If the knee's caving in, don't push it out cave it in a little more and make them self-correct, now it's at the conscious level, and if we can bring that mistake to the conscious level, we can pack it back down to the subconscious level, and that's where motor control exists. So to your point, if we just do the one-off exercise, we can have the parlor trick, we can fix anybody's toe touch or squat pretty quick. I'm interested in hitting save on the document and knowing the minimum effective dose that I can bang on you and not upset that. So what what we know is if we weave together three different exercise stations, usually in different spinal positions with one thing to focus on, awareness, breathing or control. Boom, you got it.
1: We had a great uh, conversation this morning. We were kind of talking about, well, your system allows for an exit strategy if you wanted it with a patient. So it, you know, because everyone's always wondering like, when is your patient actually done? When is the, you know, when can we tell them, you know, right off the sunset, have a nice life. So I guess the thing that the raging debate that exists, and I don't think anyone's 100% got this figured out, but what what is your take on when a patient's done? Do you think that as a physical therapist or a chiropractor, we should be maintaining these patients, following up with them? What does that look like uh, for, a, for a patient in Greg Cook's mind?
2: Personally, if I could fast forward us into a better future, I would probably say the dental model works for me. Right. Meaning, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I think if we've got a relationship and, and you trust it, every time you come in for a well check, I'm not going to try to convert you to a patient or sell you a package of 30 visits. Um, I'd like to just monitor your risk factors. If you would like to continue on in a wellness relationship, I'd love you to come here and work out on the equipment but not need a treatment. So, I've always had a practice that had a wellness leg. Sure. I don't consider it a money maker as much as I do just a, a this is we've got a pretty good culture here to check in. It, yeah, it is. And and so if if you want to go back and be your trail runner, then I'll change your oil for you periodically. The one thing I I really don't like is I don't like people ordering up manual therapy. I'm 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 not your soft tissue guy. If soft tissue is needed to restore what you need, that's what I'll do. But I've had a lot of once I started dry needling and you know pretty good with manipulation, people like, oh I just just rack it and crack it. And I'm like, you can't order food for me that way.
1: Yeah. So an I'm a carte Right, right. But I
2: honestly I honestly see how if I had to put food on the table and that's the only way, I'm not going to turn down that business. But I really want to close cases. If you choose to stay part of this culture, then we have a fitness leg, we have a wellness leg, or we have a twice a year checkup leg. Do whatever you want, but if you like that culture, and I'd like to think that the quality of your life goes up, and, and when we have you know apps and, and ways to remotely coach people right now, I can create a really cool um, uh, business opportunity for a lot of my staff that may not be as accomplished clinician as myself, but they'd like half their patients to be more wellness and less manual therapy. Fine. Carry, right. carry a bigger load of exercise people as an advisor or a smaller load of people who need soft tissue. I think the the money's going to be about the same. What do you like doing every day? You know,
1: and you can utilize manual therapy without your patients, like getting addicted to that. You know, I mean, I think like the world kind of thinks that like the world is just like clamoring for your hands. I mean, you can still use manual therapy and then educate them on how that's part of it without, you know, people have this like hard stance on them. Like sometimes it gets a little bit, a little bit too much, but
2: it is, it is. I, I think the, the, the best surgeons are reluctant to do surgery. And I think the best manual therapist will easily wean you off of an adjustment routine and to a better mattress, a better better pillow, better sleep hygiene, and better footwear, and boom, your neck problem's gone. I know you're going to have another problem, and that neck's probably not going to be a hundred percent. So yeah. we're we're going to see each other again, but I would like to know that that um, I'm completely transparent about the fact that I don't need you to be here to for this thing to stay open I don't I don't need you here I need yeah. you I need you to graduate and be happy and if and if you ever need us on your movement journey again you know where we are That's, like they
1: say the the best acupuncturist when they start you'll need 30 needles when you're 85 years old you've done it for 40 years you need one needle to get the job done yeah yeah Sni- sniper right
2: yeah and I and, and you can read people but and know know what they need but Um, a lot of times, uh, I have patients that don't want any manual therapy, Mm. no needle, nothing. And, and a lot of times I will say, well, we're probably only going to do it twice anyway. So, you know what I'm saying? So sometimes I have to argue for it, but it's, it's a, it's a situation where I think I have a lot of integrity and authenticity in what I say, because I want the examination process to be completely transparent for my patient. I want them to realize when I'm looking at a structural problem and when I'm looking at what I say a functional problem is. And you know, mm-hmm. easiest way I describe a functional problem to my patients is I'm like, I've worked with kids with fractures a lot. Many times when the bone is healed, the ankle has full range of motion and the muscles are equal strength, kids still limps because mm-hmm. you spent three months learning how to limp. <laughs> That's a behavior. There's, there's nothing I can do to that leg to get rid of that limp, but there are some movement patterns, and, and this goes back to you know some of the rolling stuff we do, PNF, DNS. We can go in and scrub that neurological system of that limp, but there is no anatomical structure causing the limp anymore. It is a behavior, and it's nice to know that we can treat movement behavior problems, and we can treat movement tissue problems, but don't confuse the two because they, they aren't manipulated the same way.
1: The brain never forgets an injury does it the tissues forget but the brain will never forget that nope
2: no and the worse the injury is the the deeper that memory goes you know
1: who uh who is on gray cook's mount rushmore for you know where you're at right now like who's influenced you and and it doesn't have to be obviously it doesn't have to be within the world of therapy either so who are the who are the people that have got us to this point there's probably been some influencers that have influenced FMS without even realizing it, maybe. My, you, you said uh, Hughes yesterday, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My,
2: well, the first one's my dad. Yeah. Uh, you know, he always used to sort of whisper in my ear, "Be a leader, not a follower," and I never knew what that meant. I just went and, I was a captain of the football team. Is this what you mean? You know, <laughs> <laughs> captain of the track team. Is this what you mean? I was an RA in the dorms. Is this what you mean? Dad, Is this okay? Is this <laughs> and, and and there was a point when I had a great group of guys at FMS, and I. The, the, the original guys we started with it was more like a frat house. I didn't realize I was the big brother in the frat house. I was just <laughs> you're just having, having a frat brother? Yeah, but I realized, oh crap, I'm I'm the leader here. And and that doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean I get to issue orders. It means that I have to be completely transparent. I've got a have communication accountability. I can't ask them to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Yeah, just you know that's perfect. Yeah it's leaders eat last man. It's Simon Sinek. It's it's right right there. And so once FMS became, I guess, specifically famous, not generally famous, but in the right <laughs> circles, FMS has got a little bit of fame. I realized, oh crap, I've got a lot of very talented teachers and instructors and people with skill sets I'll never have who's leading this thing, right? So, so sometimes you lead from the front. Sometimes you lead from behind when a lot of people thought that me and Stu were going to have this... Uh, celebrity grudge match at Stanford that was organized by by Craig Liebenson, I'm like uh, they, they they're like great you don't you don't you know like no I got to do it we, we got to do this because I honestly think it will be uh, a good thing I'm not I'm not gonna let this go sideways don't, I hide. I don't got, hide I got don't too hide. much respect yep. for Stu and too much respect for Stanford and too much respect for the people who are listening to us to make this go sideways yeah don't know? hide yeah Absolutely. so you know I my dad uh, has always just you know you you can lead in in a very good way or you can lead in a you know OCD managerial way and that just doesn't that just doesn't work for me everybody
1: doesn't work for a period of time it might work initially oh might. yeah
2: and don't don't get me wrong I've had to have a lot of people help me manage the details because'm I'm, I'm 10,000 foot I like I like the, the big picture Paul Hughes was a therapist that I worked under who really basically taught me that I wasn't even close to flying jets. I thought, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm top gun, man. You know,
1: cocky. Oh
2: my gosh, he took me down so many notches. And after three, three and a half years of working together, he basically said, "You, you know, I'd like to work with you for as long as you want to work here, but I got nothing else for you. You can go.
1: That's the lost art of the apprenticeship. The younger students right now, they have forgotten how important that is. They want to bypass that they think they should be making six figures without even establishing themselves. And it's kind of interesting, generational thing. But.
2: I had a group of students like that in an orthopedic program one time and uh, got somebody from the back row who was a runner. I got him up on stage and I said, let me see you do a toe touch. And sure enough, he, those fingertips hit him right about the patella. You know, he's just a sprung up runner, hamstrings, bird chest. You know, I I, I, I knew he couldn't touch his toes by the way he was sitting. I just wanted to bring him up. Like, this, guy's, bird, bird. <laughs> this guy's got neural tension from his occiput to his heel. He's not he's not covering up toe not a toe touch. So anyway, I brought him up. On, but I'm like, try as hard as you can. And I was like, does it hurt? And he goes, no, it doesn't hurt. I just can't do it. And I'm like, I looked at this group of therapists that six months from now is going to be out there calling themselves the exact same thing as I call myself, right? And I'm like, hey guys, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. When I come back, I'd like to see him touching his toes. I went and gave him easily five minutes. Come back and... He's just attempting to touch his toes. I mean, that's, that's all they had. I'm like, you mean to tell me? <laughs> I got the combined knowledge of 30 of you in here, and that's all you got? I'm like, you want me to stand up here and tell you how to take people who are in pain and get them moving better? He's not even in pain. I can have him touching his toes in three minutes. It may hold. It may not hold. But I can modulate this system. You're getting ready to go navigate this system complicated by pain. If you can't even change movement, don't you even step in the pain arena. So I I really would like to challenge young ATCs, chiropractors, try to fix dysfunctional movement Mm -hmm. without the complication of pain. And you'll see how inept you are and how poor your tools are unless you really sort of get under the hood of this thing and realize if you can't identify why they're not moving well, then there's... A pretty good chance the exercise ain't gonna work. That's right.
1: Your dad, Paul Hughes, give us one more.
2: I I met Yonda once, but I've read every word in the Yonda companion. Pendulum. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was put out. And I, I remember specifically the impact of at the time I came out of PT school, it was still quite vogue for you to stand up against a postural grid. Mm-hmm. And people would say, oh, see how low the right shoulder is? And,
1: you know, I'm like, well, how do you know the left one didn't high?" <laughs> I mean, what the hell? <laughs> or actually, base... let me go away and have a cup of coffee and come back and see if you've done anything about that. Yeah. yeah exactly, but
2: I, I think, you know, at the same time, I, I was looking at the postural grid and I'm like, I don't think this is, there's a better way to look at posture. And then I, I was reading Yonda's words, probably translated um, and he said the best way to look at posture is in single leg stance because 80% of the gait cycle is predominantly more on one leg than the other. And what he's really saying is if you've got good static posture, that can be a pose. Mm-hmm. The real posture of the active life is dynamic posture. And a snapshot of single leg stance is one of the most elegant ways to see that. And so I just, I just saw in him this thing of let's not – Let's not make movement that clean and tidy, right? Because what a muscle does in the kinesiological book ain't what a muscle does. 80% of almost every muscle uh, inserts onto the muscle tendon junction. 20% feeds itself right back into the fascial tensegrity network. So every muscle is attached to the skin suit. And the bone it moves, mm. right? So when you start seeing this interconnected n- behavior, you don't think about the muscles in your brain like the computer in your car thinks about the six or eight different pistons. That's not how it works. You have this language of position sense and posture sense and balance, and you just start weaving these things together. And and I think you know the neural de- developmental progression. Uh, of spinal positions and reciprocal patterns and and PNF pretty much map everything we need to go. We don't have to go into isolation unless you've had a surgery or a muscle rupture or something. But I think that that so much of our exercise knowledge has been influenced by bodybuilding and kinesiology. Mm -hmm. And my whole point is martial artists were teaching kids how to break boards with their hand long before they knew what the anatomy of the hand was. So you don't need to be able to Identify the hook of the handmate to make the hand function in a miraculous way a lot of people learn piano They didn't know the anatomy to do it. So I really think that as anatomist we make exercise about specifically Isolating a tissue the point of movement is to not isolate any tissue. It's
1: to run all tissues together at about 20 percent capacity So you have got a huge buffer, right? If I stood Taylor up right now and he couldn't stand on one leg, let's just say everything we're just talking about. Is the intervention for him simply to stand more on one leg? Or what What do you think? Is, what, no, what does that I, actually mean? I,
2: I, I'm, I'm so glad that you did that because so many of us would, you know, we would sit there watching him wobble on one leg and nice and posed on the other leg. And immediately you start here in third row. It's a glute medius, a tight ankle, fallen arch. He's a pronator. Valgus collapse. All the biases come out of yeah, that. But- everybody's just barking glute. out. An anatomical term, but nobody's, nobody's really helping you because they're barking out parts of you. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting here wondering, why is my balance so bad on one side and the other? So the very first thing I start thinking about is, you know what, what if I ask you to take a knee? And what if you take the knee of the leg that you could balance on real good and you put that one down and put your other foot up? And I just have you and, and you look great. And so I narrow that, mm. that base. I can hand you a kettlebell or a sandbag. they do a halo, but I'm just gonna to try to perturbate you in half kneeling. If, if you look very put together, half kneeling on either side, but you look very sloppy standing on one foot, I don't question your core or your hip as much as I do your foot, because if you're demonstrating pretty good single limb competence in half kneeling, whereas if you adopt half kneeling on that side, and you're still broken. You're, you're, your 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 butt sticking out. You're right. up on your psoas, It just it doesn't look like the same pattern. I'm like, oh, so the problem is still in play. So then I might take you into quadruped. How do you look when you stick this leg out? Do you do you still? Because you can have that Trendelenburg in quadruped too. Oh, I still see it. So we take you over to rolling. And all of a sudden, no, rolling looks great. So between rolling and quadruped. Something went like wrong. You've lost single limb competency. We see it all the way up there in standing. So we can start messing with things that look like that transition between prone, supine, rolling, and quadruped. And we can just play in that space for a bit. And what we found is as long as you don't have pain or a restriction, you will actually regroove that thing. You'll stand up and have better single leg stance, and I'll confirm it with a motor control test or YBT. Sure. So we keep going down the neurodevelopmental um uh, sequence until we see that degree of normalcy. And if we get all the way to rolling and you still got a problem, we can't go any lower than that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, if you can't roll because you've got a OA restriction, <laughs> then we just free that up and and we just put you right back mm-hmm. in rolling. So if we do need a little manual therapy at that level, rib cage or whatever, it doesn't matter whether it's a mobility or stability technique. If it mm-hmm. restores rolling,
1: then we're back on the journey to same. Don't you stance. think that is what makes this so much fun. Just cause every case is such a unique puzzle. Like to see like where your portal of entry is and to see if your portal of entry was right, then you have the greatest change across the whole kinematic system. I think that because everyone asks me, like, you know, I'm at I'm old enough now to where like a lot of my friends are out of they're burned out and stuff like that. And I always say, like, don't get me wrong, the public is a pain in the ass. I get that, but like I'm still excited to go grind on patients because I just feel like I, I'm continuing to sharpen my saw with, like, knowing where the right portal of entry is and just seeing the interconnectedness of the body is just so amazing. You, it's not like a watch, you know. You,
2: no, and I know you've been here too. And, and when we get those opportunities to see the the guys they've talked about on ESPN, right? You, you get pulled into a high profile. I know. I'm not the only person that's seen this person. Yeah and I'm also not the smartest. <laughs> I'm not. But I'm going to come at it different. Right? Right? I'm not going to assume anything. Right. I'm going to let this problem tell itself to me without this person's mouth. So they're going to tell me, well I did this, I did this, I did this, I saw Andrews, I saw this, I got PRP. Up. Fine. Get all that off your chest, <laughs> right? And and so I I love seeing people that have been seen by multiple people because they all needed you to be a thing. If you saw a fascia guy, he needed it to be fascial. And if you saw a joint guy, he needed to get that PRP right up in that joint. And if you went to a movement person, you're going to be rolling around on the ground for a long time. I get it, right? My point is, what's the bottleneck and what modulates it? Mm -hmm. And so with the transparency of the SFMA, the FMS, the YBT, a breathing screen, some classic stuff like grip strength, I'm looking for severe restriction or inhibition. That's what I'm looking for. And if I see a severe restriction, I will measure it a bunch of different ways and I'll do something to change it and we'll remeasure it. And they'll tell me, I won't tell them. He picked up 30 years like, wow. How much did I pick up? That's a lot, you know. And right. But if they if they've also got an inhibition, I will give you your single leg stance back, and your eyes will get real big, or you'll squat deep, or something like that. So, I really, um, I really do the same thing every time, and I, and I learned that from Hughes. I don't care whether he's looking at a bunion or a TMJ; they are going through something that looks very much like the top tier long before the SFMA and and, and the in the systematic approach was was instilled by by Paul Hughes because he was a man that took therapist. us a while to get to that point <laughs> <but> yeah that's, <laughs> no, that, that's exactly right yeah, yeah yeah um my dad uh was an amazing minister and he always used to say keep it simple stupid you know <laughs> it, Mark Twain's brilliant because he could do in a sentence what a philosopher used to take two pages to do right
1: as I age I appreciate simplicity like the beauty and simplicity is so anybody can make something complex. In the world of physical therapy and manual therapy, I think, or therapeutic exercise, it's kind of the sexy thing to make it complex, but the true genius makes it simpler. Makes it more simple.
2: I think so. And 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 the the language of movement is not written in words and pictures, it's written in feel. And so we're literally modulating the way someone feels because you gotta realize every one of your kids walk pretty well before they talk. So there's not a <laughs> verbal component to movement. Sure. And so, so you know, I honestly know what it feels like to have a one on the FMS. You'd have thought I would have developed a screen that I did very well on, I don't do very well on it. I was born with a hernia and I've had it repaired four times already. Um, I was three weeks old, I had a huge blowout hernia, and many of my fractures, many of my problems are stacked on that side. It is what it is, but I can sit on a plane long enough and lose pretty much all the leg race on this side. And it's just the way it is. So you know we've got to do some of that maintenance, but but revisiting that baseline and then realizing some of these people need manual, manual modulation, and some of these people need to stick at a developmental place for a while and just regrease that groove
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I love it. Well, before we know it, we are an hour and in. So what a what a great conversation. I think let's uh let's go get another drink and uh let's finish uh, yeah, let's finish with the ceremonial
1: passing yeah. of the loving cup. I yeah,
0: uh well I think great the thing that I appreciated too is like you, you gave us some good backstory on your dad and, and how his uh his ministry kind of affected your your speaking and stuff like that. And you can definitely tell the the passion that you have for this and uh the passion that you have for for Making the world a better place. And so we appreciate you for that.
2: No, I, I enjoy it. I think that, that believe it or not, we, we're we in a great profession because in, in musculoskeletal medicine, we touch lives mm. in an in a unbelievably unique way. We physically touch people and hopefully we give them back something they were getting ready to lose. And, and I, I look at every one of my patients, they're either seeking performance or independence. It boils down to that. You, you you need four more years in your career, you're going for performance. But eventually, we're all trying to become more independent. And I got to realize that. So so many of my treatments, I'm shooting for that independence. If you choose to stay with me for a while and keep working on stuff, that's fine. But, but handing somebody their independence back, is, I've had mine taken away with a two-level fusion in my neck. I saw my parents almost lose their independence. Mm-hmm. And being able to hand that gift back to somebody. Um, if you think about we touch movement disease, right? Mm-hmm. And we would hope to turn it into movement ease, not disease. So uh we're we're gonna pos- play on words there. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're in a position to touch lives and we're in a position to be unbelievably holistic diagnosticians. And if we don't, who's gonna do it? Right. So it's amazing baby with that all right
0: thank you we'll be back with another one i'm sure so
2: great we'll ride the jet ski and figure out something else to talk about (laughs)
0: that's right
1: (laughs) all right see you guys